Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. The day of the wedding and immense crowds. Thousands had assembled overnight. Others had arrived at dawn, all eagerly waiting to see and to cheer the royal processions on this day of their own princess's marriage. This was the climax of a royal romance. And all over the world at this moment, the thoughts of well-wishers were centered on Her Royal Highness. The Royal Bride arrives. Her own sparkling beauty is superbly set off by the simplicity of her wedding gown of white organza. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here in the sight of God and in the face of this congregation to join together this man and this woman in holy matrimony. I am Elizabeth Alexandra Mary. Take thee, Philip. Take thee, Philip. To my wedded husband. To my wedded husband. I, Margaret Rose. I, Margaret Rose. Take thee, Anthony Charles Robert. Take thee, Anthony Charles Robert. To my wedded husband. To my wedded husband. I, Anne Elizabeth Alice Louise. I, Anne Elizabeth Alice Louise. Take thee, Mark Anthony Peter. Take thee, Mark Anthony Peter. To my wedded husband. To my wedded husband. I, Diana Francis. I, Diana Francis. Take thee, Charles Philip Arthur George. Take thee, Philip Charles Arthur George. To my wedded husband. To my wedded husband. I, Catherine Elizabeth. I, Catherine Elizabeth. Take thee, William Arthur Philip Louis. Take thee, William Arthur Philip Louis. To my wedded husband. To my wedded husband.
Hello, and welcome to the other half. Supplemental, the Royal Wedding Special. Royal weddings are huge occasions. When Prince William married Kate Middleton, the whole thing was estimated to have cost more than £20 million, and was witnessed by 1,900 people in Westminster Abbey, over 30 million people in the UK, and up to 2 billion people around the world saw at least part of it on television. Around £40 million worth of merchandising was sold, involving everything from souvenir mugs and tea towels to condoms and porcelain pill pots. That was the big royal wedding for my generation. But the previous had Charles and Diana, which was every bit as big, and then one before that had the wedding of Princess Margaret and even that of the then Princess Elizabeth. Royal weddings have that most heady mix of pomp and circumstance, but also community, love and fellowship. They provide miles of content for the press and social media owners, and discussions on everything from the difference between a fascinator and a hatinator, the fact that David Beckham wore his OBE on the wrong side, to the relative aesthetic qualities of Pippa Middleton's bum. And that was just the last one. Harry's marriage to Meghan Markle won't be as big an occasion as that of his brother or father. Those were weddings involving heirs to the throne. The expectation was that this was a wedding between a future king and queen of the United Kingdom and 15 other countries ranging from Canada to Tuvalu. But it will still be a big deal. And I'm sure that many of you listening to this today are really looking forward to it. But with royal weddings come royal wedding commentators and so-called experts who profess a load of old tosh about the occasion without knowing anything really about the history of the whole thing. The British and English royal wedding is an event that goes back centuries, and there is a vast amount of history and tradition. Each ceremony took something from what has gone before and added its own little twist. Most histories of royal weddings in England go back to Henry I, the third Norman king, who married Matilda of Scotland and Westminster Abbey in 1100. But really, its history goes back as far as there have been kings and queens. But people still make the same inane comments about how all marriages in the past were cold and heartless, and that we should now bask in this brave new world where all brides and grooms love each other. So, in this supplemental, I will be giving you a brief history of the royal wedding, focusing mostly on Britain, all the while debunking some myths that will no doubt come up during the coverage. Things like, Meghan is the first foreigner to marry into the House of Windsor. Wrong. She's making history by being the first divorced person to marry a British prince. Wrong. Or, she's the first biracial woman to become a British royal. While that might be true, there are some theories that would surprise you. I talked a lot about royal weddings, of course, in the Queens of England podcast, so I'm not going to go through a detailed potted history. So instead, I will look at some of the key aspects of the wedding of Harry and Meghan, and look at how they relate to their historical forebears. Okay, so let's start at the beginning, shall we? Why are Harry and Meghan getting married? Well, the obvious answer to that is that they kind of have to. Even now, when religio-conservative norms were on the retreat, it would still seem improper for Harry and Meghan to live together, attend functions together, and essentially act as man and wife without making the whole thing official. Couples living together long-term is something that's becoming more and more common for, well, normal people but not for the Windsors. It's just not the done thing. But that's not really the question that I was asking, was it? The real one is, what is the reason behind the marriage? Now, in the past, royals married for advantage. What does that mean? 
Well, it means that their choice of bride or groom had far more to do with what the marriage actually meant strategically than their feelings for the actual person themselves. Marriage may cement a foreign alliance, end a war, secure a peace, bring a bit of a windfall of cash, great tracts of land, or big fancy titles. Henry V's marriage to Catherine of France in 1420 saw the end of a phase of the Hundred Years' War and the Crown of France transferring to the House of Plantagenet. Marrying Eleanor of Aquitaine brought England and its King Henry II about a third of France, and the dowry of Catherine of Braganza brought the city of Bombay into English hands. For the most part, these weddings were arranged without the consent or approval of one or both the participants. Brides were often as young as twelve, and sent off from their homeland to a faraway kingdom to marry some dude she had never met. This is all to say that royal weddings of the past were almost never for love. But there are some exceptions. In England, we have the example of Edward IV, whose reasons for marrying Elizabeth Woodville in 1464 are uncertain, but widely thought to be love. She was a commoner, a widow of meagre means, who seems to have charmed the king into making her his wife. The wedding was politically an absolutely terrible idea, as it really ticked off his main ally, the Earl of Warwick, who had his own candidate that he wanted Edward to get hitched with. Indeed, this wedding ended up with Edward being thrown out of England and sent into exile, though of course he did return and reclaim his crown. Then there is, of course, Queen Victoria, who was completely besotted with her bridegroom, Albert, Prince of Saxe-Coburg and Gotha. They had met while teenagers while he and his brother were holidaying in England, and she was immediately entranced. She said of him, quote, He is perfection in every way, in beauty, in everything. After she became queen, she proposed to him. Yes, she did. That was the royal protocol. And he said yes. They married four months later. The wedding of Prince Charles and Diana Spencer in 1981 was widely portrayed at the time as being the ultimate romantic fairy tale. Here was a handsome, eligible bachelor who would one day become king, marrying the epitome of the modern woman. She had been to university. She had flatmates. Her parents were divorced. She worked at a kindergarten. They were perfect. But the reality, as it turns out, was far more complicated. Charles didn't really want to marry Diana. He was really in love with his friend Camilla. But she was already married. Didn't stop them from sleeping together a bunch. But at the time, it was a big no-no to marry a divorcee, as we'll discuss later in the episode. So that was out of the question. He married Diana because he had to marry somebody, and she seemed like a good idea at the time. And we all know how that ended up. And of course, let's not forget Henry VIII, who married and sometimes killed for love several times. Just ask Anne Boleyn and Catherine Howard. Sticking with our old pan Henry, another big reason behind royal weddings, of course, was to confer legitimacy on children so that they could become the next monarch. Now this is a big deal when it comes to heirs to the throne, It was one of the reasons, for example, why Charles was put under so much pressure to marry and have kids. But in the case of Henry's namesake, Harry and Meghan, that isn't the case. Harry is extremely unlikely to ever become king. Even if something were to happen to his brother William, he would still have to outlive George, Charlotte and now little Louis, and that is just a whole series of unfortunate accidents that will never happen, especially as those kids will likely have kids of their own, one day that would also jump ahead of him. Now, Harry and Meghan have talked about how they can't wait to start a family, and so the desire to have children together was probably a big factor in them deciding to get married. In that respect, they are like Henry VIII and Anne Boleyn. 
but let's hope that's where the similarities stop. Those of us who have gotten engaged know that after answering questions like how did he propose and have you chosen a date yet, you generally find people grabbing your fiancé's hand to have a look at that engagement ring. Rings have been seen as symbols of love and commitment since at least ancient Egypt. The fact that the ring is a never-ending circle with no beginning or end is meant to symbolise undying love. However, the exchanging of rings between betrothed partners or married partners is a little younger, first taking place in ancient Rome. They wore the ring, as we do now, on the fourth finger of the left hand, as it was believed that the vein in that finger went directly to the heart. The Romans, however, did not go in for jewelled rings made with precious metals. Ever practical and symbolically minded, they made their wedding rings out of iron, symbolising the strength and enduring nature of the match. The first recorded use of diamonds in an engagement ring came in 1477, with the betrothal of the Habsburg Archduke Maximilian of Austria with Mary of Burgundy. This was a hugely significant match, as it brought all of the Low Countries under Habsburg rule, and so a fancy ring was needed to give proper gravitas to the situation. Medieval technology was not advanced enough to cut and polish the diamonds, but for Maximilian, the symbolism was more important. Like the Romans, he wanted to find a stone that would symbolise his lasting love and the enduring legacy of this marriage, and diamonds would do just the trick. However, it was more common for royal wedding and engagement rings to be plain, as with Mary I of England when she married Philip of Spain, or to carry the bride's gemstone, as with Queen Victoria. Diamonds did not become popular for wedding rings until they were discovered by the British in South Africa in the late 19th century, and then really took off after World War II. Since 1923, royal wedding rings have been made of Welsh gold, a special rose-tinted variety six times more expensive than regular gold. This tradition started with the marriage of the Queen's parents, and has continued ever since then, with the Queen, Princess Margaret, Princess Anne, Prince Charles twice and both of his wives, and Kate Middleton all having Welsh gold wedding rings. Unfortunately, the last mine that still produced this gold closed in 1999, and the Queen only had a small amount left to dish out. Will she give some to Meghan Markle for her wedding band? Or will she choose something else? We'll just have to wait and see. We do know, however, about her engagement ring. Like most couples these days, her ring, which was designed by Prince Harry, features diamonds, one large central one and two smaller ones to the side. The middle one comes from Botswana, the place where they went on their third date. Slightly fancier than anywhere I've been on a third date. And the other two are taken from jewellery previously owned by Harry's mother, Princess Diana. In this, he's mirroring his brother, who gave Kate Middleton his mother's engagement ring, saying that he wanted to make sure that he included her on his special day. Going back to marrying for advantage, just briefly. A side effect of the need to gain something from the marriage, alliance, peace, foreign lands, etc., has led to the great majority of royal spouses being from overseas. If we merely look at English and British monarchs since the Norman Conquest, only ten have been from these shores, and that is with me generously counting people like Matilda of Scotland and Guildford Dudley. Ten of forty. And though I haven't crunched the numbers for other royals, I would bet you all the money in my pocket that it is a similar ratio. So Meghan is in good company there. What makes her a little more unusual is the fact that she is American. Now, of course, the notion of an American hasn't been around for very long, 
the first British colony in the Americas, wasn't formed until the early 17th century when the settlement was made at Jamestown in Virginia. But despite this, she isn't the only American to become a royal. Sticking again with Britain, there is the infamous example of Wallace Simpson, the Pennsylvanian socialite whose plans to marry King Edward VIII caused the greatest scandal in 20th century royal history. Wallace Simpson was twice divorced and both of her former husbands were still living, and at the time, you could not marry someone like that in a Church of England ceremony. Rather problematic when Edward was the head of that church. Add in her reputation for being a plain-spoken, sassy, showy American stereotype, and it was obvious to the ruling classes that she could never be queen. Edward was willing to marry her morgatonically, i.e. she would not gain a title and neither would their children, but that would require an act of Parliament, and Parliament refused. He was forced to choose between his love or his crown, and he chose love. He abdicated the throne, passing it on to his brother, whose daughter Elizabeth is still queen to this day. Meghan does, though, have some American royal models who have been more accepted by their kingdoms. The most famous American royal is, of course, Grace Kelly, who, like Meghan, was an actress. Indeed, she was one of Hollywood's greatest stars in the 1950s, winning the Oscar for Best Actress in 1954 for her role in The Country Girl. The following year, she was chosen to head the American delegation to the Cannes Film Festival, and as part of that, she went on a photo shoot in Monte Carlo. There, she met Prince Rainier of Monaco, the monarch of the tax-saving city-state. They hit it off, and a few months later, he travelled to the United States and proposed. Their wedding was dubbed the Wedding of the Century, and was an incredibly glamorous affair, but it wasn't all glitz. Rainier had to produce children, because if he didn't, then the Principality of Monaco would revert back to French rule. Therefore, Grace had to consent to a physical examination to check whether or not she was fertile. I doubt that Harry made Meghan do that. The similarities between Meghan and Grace Kelly don't end there either. Like the soon-to-be princess, Grace loved her dogs, and when she arrived in Monaco to get married, she was holding her adorable black poodle, Oliver, who had been an engagement present from her former co-star, Cary Grant. In terms of living American royals, there is Queen Noor al-Hussein of Jordan, who was born Lisa Hallaby. She was the daughter of a successful former Navy pilot who served in both the Truman and Kennedy administrations. His father had been Syrian, and Lisa had always had a great interest in the Middle East, and spent her career in architecture and construction with a bent on that region. Her career eventually took her to Jordan, where she met and fell in love with their king, Hussein. He was 15 years her senior, but they enjoyed a lightning romance that saw them married in a traditional Islamic ceremony in June 1978. Now, this wasn't his first marriage to a Westerner. His second wife had been a British secretarial assistant whom he had met on the set of Lawrence of Arabia. Not a sentence I ever thought I'd write, and Lisa's Syrian roots meant that she was greeted as an Arab returning home rather than a stranger. She took the name Nul al-Hussein, meaning Hussein's light when she converted to Sunni Islam, and went on to be a very successful and much-loved queen, concentrating mainly on charitable, economic and environmental matters. Hussein died in 1999, but she's still about, fighting the good fight. She's written an autobiography of her amazing life, if you'd like to learn more about her. Like Meghan, Grace Kelly and Nora Hussein married into dynasties that still ruled their countries, 
But royals are still royals, even if they have no kingdom to rule over. And there are many Americans in those dynasties. Jackie Kennedy's sister Lee married a Polish prince in 1959. Sisters Marie Chantal and Alexandra Miller, daughters of an American duty-free magnate, because apparently they exist, married Greek and German princes respectively in the 1990s. And finally, an American investment banker named Kelly Rondesfeld married another German prince called Hubertus of Saxburg-Gotha in 2009. Students of English royalty will know that name. Queen Elizabeth II is a Saxburg-Gotha. Her grandfather, George V, changed the name during World War I because it sounded too German. But before you get too excited about having an American Queen of the UK, as of 2011, when the last survey was done, Hubertus was 380th in line to the throne. And that was before Kate had a bunch of kids and succession laws were changed, so who knows where he is now. Being an American, of course, means that Meghan is technically a commoner, something that, while not all that unusual now, certainly was in years gone by. Indeed, when Kate Middleton becomes queen, she'll be the first commoner to do so since Elizabeth Woodville in the 1460s. All of the Queen's children, however, have married commoners, as have most of their children. Zara Phillips married an international rugby player, for goodness sakes. Britain has never had a law, so far as I'm aware, that required members of its royal family to marry into noble families. What it does have, though, is the Royal Marriages Act 1772, which has many provisions, one of them being that the monarch must give their consent to any marriage involving a member of their family. This came about largely because George III's brother, Prince Henry, reportedly first married a commoner, then the daughter of a noble who was considered to be a bit of a floozy, and then his other brother suddenly announced that he had been secretly married for six years to a woman who was illegitimate. George's troubles were not over, though, as his son and heir, Prince George, married a Catholic commoner, Maria Fitzherbert, in secret. But because he hadn't got his father's permission, not to mention the fact that she was a damned papist, it was not legal. Then another one of his sons, Augustus, did the same damn thing a decade later. That law remained in place until 2013, when it was repealed and replaced with the Succession to the Crown Act, which, along with other things, limited the people requiring the monarch's permission to marry to only the first six in line. This, of course, includes Prince Harry, who had to formally ask his grandmother's permission to marry Meghan. Outside of the UK, though, quite a few monarchies have laws preventing marriages with commoners. In 1923, the heir to the Swedish throne, Gustav Adolf, proposed to Lady Louise Mountbatten, but there was a bit of a scandal in the press about Louise's parentage, as no king of Sweden could marry a commoner. Indeed, the Prime Minister of Sweden had to make a rather awkward telephone call to his British counterpart to inquire about her lineage. Luckily, the British PM was able to tell him that she was a great-granddaughter of Queen Victoria, so they were able to be married. Louise would become Queen of Sweden in 1950. While Japan doesn't have a formal law requiring its male royals to marry into nobility, it does have a very strong tradition of doing so. The current monarch, Emperor Akihito, broke with 2,000 years of tradition in 1959 when he married the daughter of a wealthy businessman. He was allowed to keep his title, and his wife was able to become empress. However, female members of the Japanese royal family are not extended the same rights, thanks to the Imperial Household Law of 1947. Indeed, Hakito's daughter Sayoko 
was forced to give up her rank and inheritance in 2005 when she married an urban designer. She was so unused to living a normal life that she had to practice things like shopping and learn how to drive in preparation for leaving the royal family. This has been the case also for seven other female Japanese royals, and will happen again in 2020 when Princess Meiko marries her fiancé Kei Komuro, whom she met at university. Seems like a really dumb law to me. A major focus of the press coverage surrounding Harry and Meghan's wedding, good and racist, I'm looking at you, the son, surrounded the fact that Meghan is mixed race. People have been very excited to finally have someone non-white in the British royal family. In some ways, Harry is mirroring his mother, who famously was going out with Dodiel Fayed, an Egyptian, when they both died in 1997. It is believed that the first person of known African descent to marry into a reigning European royal family did not do so until 2011, when Panamanian fashion designer Angela Brown married the second son of the ruling Prince of Liechtenstein. Together, they have a son called Alphonse, and mother and son are currently the highest-ranking black or mixed-race royals in Europe. The little prince is sixth in line, though, the same position as Prince Harry, and so very unlikely to ever become the Prince of Liechtenstein. If we broaden ourselves to non-ruling dynasties, then we find quite a lot more non-white princesses, this time in the unlikeliest of royal families. The Habsburgs are legendary for marrying within their own family to protect the sanctity of the dynasty, but ever since they were ousted from power, they've spread their wings a bit. There are Habsburgs now, currently married to Cubans, Sudanese, and even a black lawyer from South Carolina. The issue that Meghan, and probably all these women have found, is that the cultural imagination of royalty is white. Think princess, and you see people like Cinderella, Snow White, Anastasia, Diana Spencer, Kate Middleton... There are people out there who genuinely cannot conceive of what a non-white royal would look like, which is patently absurd. Quite apart from all the examples that I mentioned above, there have been kings, queens, princes and princesses in royal dynasties across the globe. Royalty doesn't have a skin colour. But this kind of racism is nothing new. There is a famous rumour in French history about one of Louis XIV's daughters. Marie-Anne was born in 1664, and unusually for Louis XIV, it was with his actual wife. She was born prematurely, and was described as being, quote, very dark. Now, the most likely explanation is that she was oxygen-deprived, especially given that she only lived for a few weeks. But rumours did swirl that she had actually been fathered by, and brace yourself, the Queen's black dwarf entertainer-slash-lover, a man named Nabo. The theory is portrayed in the BBC drama Versailles. Alternatively, Voltaire claims that she was actually one of Louis XIV's many illegitimate daughters. Whichever theory you prefer, apparently the royal family faked her death and then sent her to be raised in a nunnery. But what if I were to tell you that not one, but two full-blown British queens were mixed race? Right? Right? Well, kinda maybe. Well, probably not. The first candidate is Charlotte of Mecklenburg-Strelitz, who was the wife of King George III, he of losing America fame. As you may have guessed from the name, she was a German princess, but she was of Portuguese descent. And the theory goes that her 13 times great-grandparents were King Afonso III of Portugal and his Moorish mistress, Madrigada. 
one of the things the historians that back this theory use as evidence is a contemporary portrait. It currently hangs in the Mint Museum in the American city that bears her name, Charlotte, North Carolina, and it apparently depicts her with dark skin and so-called African features. Now, you don't need me to tell you that this is a bit of a stretch, not to mention the fact that, even if it were the case, the 500-year gap of solely white people in between would probably made her as pale-skinned as any of her contemporaries. If true, though, this would mean that Madrigana's blood still flows in the British royal family, among others, as the Queen is a direct descendant of Caroline of Mecklenburg through her son Edward and his daughter, Queen Victoria. For the second candidate, we need to go back a little further into old Queens of England podcast territory. Philippa of Hainaut was the daughter of a count of the Holy Roman Empire, from a region that is in modern Belgium, and married the then Prince Edward, soon to be King Edward III of England, in 1328. Now, I didn't mention this on the QE podcast episode on her, but there is a theory that she was also black. There are two tenets to this theory. The first is from the description given to her by one of Edward's bishops, which says that she had dark hair, dark eyes, and that, quote, she is brown of skin all over. Also, her eldest son was famously called the Black Prince, which most historians say is a reference to the colour of his armour, but apparently he had this nickname while a child, which renders that theory perhaps a little problematic. As to where she got her black ancestry from, well, there's a ton of speculation. If you trace her ancestry back seven generations, you get to a Byzantine prince called Euphrosin, whose mother is unknown, but could have been an Ethiopian princess called Quirene. Again, though, this theory relies on her skin colour surviving a lot of other white ancestors, and so seems to stretch credulity to me. I've also seen theories that she was a Moor, like Caroline's ancestry, but I haven't found any grounding in that. The central problem here is the proponents of this theory place an awful lot of reading on the word dark, which, when you think about it, could mean anything. Indeed, if she did look Moorish or even African, they would have used those words to describe her. The most likely explanation is that she had brown or black hair, not blonde, like so many other princesses of her time. Meghan's ancestry and ethnicity have dominated the headlines so far. But sooner or later, we're going to get to the key question that dominates every royal wedding. The dress. What will it be? Who's the designer? What style will it be in? How many miles long will the train be? Has she lost weight? All of these facts are normally kept as closely guarded secrets right up until the moment that she first emerges for the crowds and cameras to see. We have no idea, at the time of recording, what Megan's dress will be, but whoever does have the honour of designing it will feel quite the weight of history on their shoulders. Royal wedding dresses have lives that extend far beyond the wedding day itself. Princess Diana's dress, for example, is a mainstay of exhibitions on her life and is continually on display. Brides around the world still copy the designs of their favourite princesses, so it's important to get it right. One thing, though, that we can say with a reasonable degree of certainty is that her dress will be some variant of white. Every British royal bride for 150 years has worn white, though Camilla Parker Bowles wore an oyster-coloured coat over her dress at her wedding to Prince Charles. This was not always the case, though. For most of history, European royal brides tended to wear whatever colour they liked, 
The most important thing was that it looked expensive. Wedding dresses reflected contemporary fashions and would be made of whatever materials were in the contemporary vogue. That is not to say that brides did not wear white ever. Catherine of Aragon, for example, wore it in 1501 when she married Prince Arthur Tudor, as did Mary I, Queen of Scots, in 1540 when she married the Dauphin. In fact, Mary's choice was considered a bit of a faux pas, as white was the colour of death and mourning. Sticking with the Tudors, though, Queen Mary I of England wore black on her marriage to Philip of Spain, and Anne of Cleves wore gold to her wedding with Henry VIII. By the 18th century, the most popular colour was silver, but everything changed in 1840 with the marriage of Queen Victoria to Prince Albert. Victoria was a massive bridezilla when it came to her wedding, planning everything personally down to the finest detail, but the greatest legacy of this wedding day would be her dress, which she designed herself. It was a very restrained design, nothing like the great over-the-top pieces that were worn by her royal ancestors. She didn't wear her crown or ermine, just a fairly plain cream number topped with a veil. It was actually quite a patriotic dress, as it was entirely made by British workers. The dress was made of Spitalfield silk satin and trimmed with British lace, not that Brussels muck that was the prevailing fashion at the time. Famously, 200 women spent eight months making the lace, which was four yards long and three quarters of a yard wide. Lace was a revolutionary choice, as it was still considered the colour of mourning, but it quickly turned to mean something else. Just ten years later, an American women's magazine declared, quote, White is the most fitting hue, whatever may be the material. It is an emblem of the purity and innocence of girlhood, and the unsullied heart she now yields to the chosen one. That idea of brides wearing white as a symbol of purity is one that has endured, and has constantly been reinforced every time a famous royal bride wears the colour. From the then Princess Elizabeth in the 40s, to Grace Kelly in the 50s, Princess Margaret in the 60s, and so on. Meghan wore white to her first wedding, not to mention her on-screen wedding in suits, so she'll probably do so again. Speaking of her first wedding, another thing that makes Meghan Markle a little different from most royal brides is the fact that she is divorced with a living husband. Remember that divorce is different from annulment. Henry VIII technically did not divorce any of his wives. He merely got his servants to find legal or pseudo-legal technicalities to get out from under wives from whom he had tired. Edward VIII had been forced to abdicate when he chose to marry the twice-divorced Wallace Simpson in the 1930s, and Princess Margaret was told that if she wanted to marry her lover Peter Townsend, she would have to give up her royal rights. It was considered a really, really big no-no until very recently. Indeed, Queen Elizabeth's children were the ones to break this taboo, with all but one becoming divorced in the 1990s. The most interesting example of this is the Princess Royal. The Queen's only daughter, Anne, married fellow equestrian Mark Phillips in 1973, but the marriage severely faltered in the 1980s, with both parties having numerous affairs. When her affair with naval officer Timothy Lawrence was discovered in 1989, it was clear that the marriage was over, and they officially divorced in 1992. Anne wasted no time in planning to marry Timothy Lawrence, but she faced the same problem that Edward and Wallace Simpson had found, that the Church of England still did not allow divorced people with living former spouses to remarry. However, the Church of Scotland removed that law in 1959, 
and so the two married in Balmoral. In so doing, she became the first royal to remarry for nearly 100 years. Luckily for Harry and Meghan, the Church of England changed its rules in 2002, allowing in, quote, exceptional circumstances for divorced people with living former spouses to remarry. Clearly, this has been considered an exceptional circumstance. They will be getting married in St George's Chapel in Windsor, a popular choice for royals down the years. It was at its busiest in the mid to late 19th century, as it was the favoured place for the children and grandchildren of Queen Victoria to get married. This all started with the wedding of her eldest son, Edward VII, to Alexander of Denmark, and continued with four of his siblings. More recently, it was also the venue for the wedding of the Queen's youngest son, Prince Edward, to Sophie Rhys-Jones in 1999, and Princess Anne's eldest son, Peter, to Autumn Kelly in 2008. Before the reign of Queen Victoria, though, St George's Chapel was mostly known for being where monarchs were buried, not married. Eleven kings of England and Britain are buried there, many of them with their wives, including Edward IV and Elizabeth Woodville, Henry VIII and Jane Seymour, George V and Mary of Teck, and the Queen's parents and her sister. It is also the intended burial place for both the Queen and Prince Philip when they die. The traditional location for English royal weddings during the Middle Ages and in the 20th century is Westminster Abbey. Starting with Henry I's marriage to Matilda of Scotland in 1100, there have been 16 royal weddings there, though there were none between the marriage in 1483 of Henry VII and Elizabeth of York and 1919, when one of Queen Victoria's granddaughters married, gasp, a commoner. It was then the venue of choice for several of George V's children, including the Queen's father, George VI. She and her sister Margaret were both married there, as were Princess Anne on her first go, and Prince Andrew to Sarah Ferguson. A famous exception to this is the wedding of Prince Charles to Diana Spencer, who chose to get married at St Paul's Cathedral, largely because it is larger and could therefore accommodate more spectators, as well as offering a longer processional route. Before the Union of the Crowns in 1603, Scottish royals were married in various places, the Stuarts tending to favour Holyrood, with three of the Jameses getting married in the Abbey, while James V and Mary I were married at the palace. Indeed, Mary would get married twice there. While almost all modern royal weddings have been in churches, this was not always the case. Henry VIII's marriages to his English wives were all conducted in his palaces, with only a few people present, and both Charles I and II both had fairly small-scale marriage services, though for them that had a lot to do with the fact that their wives were Catholic. Prince Charles, of course, had one better than that, becoming the first member of the royal family to be married in a civil ceremony, not a religious one. He married Camilla at Windsor Guild Hall, largely because of the fact that she was a divorcee, though they did receive a blessing at, you guessed it, St George's Chapel. We've already speculated about Meghan's dress, but we haven't yet talked about the flowers. The chapel will be decorated predominantly by white roses, the favourite flower of Princess Diana, another nice touch by the couple to include Harry's late mother in the service. Along with roses, there will also be peonies and foxgloves, as well as branches of beech, birch and hornbeam. One assumes that Meghan's bouquet will contain some of these flowers, but one thing that we can definitely expect in there is a sprig of myrtle. This tradition dates back, like most wedding traditions, to Queen Victoria, who received some myrtle as a gift from Prince Albert while they were in Germany. 
Victoria loved it so much that she brought it back to Osborne House on the Isle of Wight, one of her favourite palaces, and planted it there, where it still grows today. Her daughter, confusingly also named Victoria, included a sprig from that plant in her bouquet when she married the future Kaiser Frederick in 1858, and ever since then, myrtle from that very same plant has been in nigh on every single royal wedding bouquet. When the Queen married Prince Philip, she planted the myrtle from her bouquet to start a new plant. Kate Middleton's bouquet continued sprigs from both of those plants, so maybe Meghan's will do too. Another tradition with the bouquet was started by the Queen's mother in 1923. As she left Westminster Abbey, she left it on the tomb of the Unknown Warrior, which had been installed there three years earlier to honour the countless British soldiers who had died during World War I, but whose remains could not be identified. This moving mark of respect has been repeated ever since by royal brides who got married in the Abbey, and although Meghan is getting married in Windsor, she too will follow this tradition and leave her bouquet on the tomb at the Abbey, fitting given Harry's links to the armed forces. I have one final bouquet fact for you. When the Queen married Prince Philip, her bouquet was taken by a footman and locked in a cupboard during the wedding breakfast and forgotten all about. This means that, in all her wedding pictures, she is not actually carrying her bouquet. Indeed, they had to ship one out to her during the honeymoon, and they all had to put their wedding clothes back on and retake all the pictures. Therefore, ever since, the Queen has insisted that royal brides have two bouquets made, just in case such a mishap should ever happen again. Speaking of the wedding breakfast. Now, when I got married, I had no idea that this was the meal that you ate just after you got married caused a great deal of confusion when I was talking to wedding venues. Again, at the time of recording, we don't know a whole lot about what will be eaten at Harry and Meghan's wedding breakfast, only that their wedding cake will be lemon and elderflower favoured. One imagines, though, that they won't be served quite as much food as at the wedding of Duke George the Rich of Bavaria and Princess Hedwig of Poland in 1475. After the ceremony took place, the couple paraded through the city of Landshut, and through the most enormous feast of the citizens. In order to feed all the guests, the caterers had to slaughter 40,000 chickens, 1,500 sheep, 1,300 lambs, 500 calves, and 320 bullocks. Whether or not any veg was served is unclear. This ceremony is reenacted every four years in Landshut, where a three-week-long medieval festival is thrown. It sounds amazing. The Queen's wedding breakfast was a somewhat more modest affair. World War II had only ended two years previously, and Britain was still living under rationing. Only 150 guests of the 2,500 that had attended the service of the Abbey were invited, and they were treated to a three-course dinner, starting with fillets of sole, then partridge casserole with roast potatoes and green beans, and then a fancy ice cream dessert called Bombe Glacé Princess Elizabeth. This was particularly extravagant as it included fresh strawberries, difficult to find in November in the UK. If you were still hungry after that, then you could have some fresh or dried fruit. She's not the only royal bride to have a dish named after her. At Charles and Diana's wedding breakfast, guests were served Princess of Wales chicken, which consisted of chicken breasts stuffed with lamb mousse. Meghan Markle used to run a food blog back in the day, so one imagines that she'll be paying particular attention to the menu at her wedding. After the breakfast, of course, comes the wedding reception, which will likely last long into the night. One imagines, though, that one royal wedding tradition that will not be enforced in a few weeks 
is the bedding ceremony. Now, I've talked about this before on both this podcast and the Queens of England. It has long been established that to fully entrench a marriage, it was vital to consummate it as soon as possible. Therefore, after a suitable amount of drinking and revelry was completed, the bride would be taken to her bedchamber, accompanied by her best female friends and servants. They would then carefully undress her, taking care to collect all the pins that held the dress together, as they had to be ceremonially thrown away as a symbol that she was no longer a single woman. They would also collect any trimming or ribbons on the dress and give them out as wedding favours to their closest friends and family. This would not always be particularly dignified. At Catherine of Braganza's bedding after her marriage to Charles II, there was a mad scramble for the favours, leaving the poor bride with nothing to keep for herself or to give to her family. While all this was going on, the groom was still partying, but when he was notified that his wife was ready, he would make his way to the bedchamber with all the lads. They would then undress him with suitably ribald jolliness. Before 1750, it was then not all that unusual for guests to then stay and watch, or at least hear from behind the drapes of the bed, the copulating take place. Lovely. Let's hope that Harry and Meghan get a little more privacy once their wedding celebrations come to an end. Finally, there is the honeymoon. Back in the day, this purely meant a period after the wedding where a couple would stay at home in relative privacy and get to know each other. After all, many of them had met each other for the first time at the altar. The concept of going away on a trip after the wedding originated in the 19th century, coinciding with the invention of mass tourism. These trips had not always gone well. Prince Rainier took Grace Kelly out on a seven-week Mediterranean cruise for their honeymoon, but reportedly Grace was seasick for the whole trip. The Queen's parents first stayed with a friend and then went to Balmoral, but the weather up in Aberdeenshire was so awful that Duchess Elizabeth contracted whooping cough. Prince Charles and Diana's honeymoon didn't go great either. They first went to Broadlands in Hampshire, then Balmoral, mirroring the places that the Queen and Prince Philip went, before taking in a Mediterranean cruise aboard the Royal Yacht Britannia. Reportedly, they had a number of blazing arguments at Balmoral, and things only got worse when they put to sea. Charles viewed the honeymoon as being a good time to relax after the stresses of the wedding, and planned to spend most of the time reading and painting. Diana, however, had hoped to spend the honeymoon getting to know her husband better, and was furious that he seemingly didn't want to spend any time with her. This reportedly culminated in the most almighty row, where the princess stormed into his room, ripped up all his paintings, and threw out his materials. Like I said, the Queen and Prince Philip honeymooned at Balmoral, but that was never going to be enough for the more flamboyant Princess Margaret, who took in a six-week Caribbean cruise aboard the Britannia. Sounds much more fun to me. As for Harry and Meghan, nothing has been confirmed to the public at the time of recording, but it is very likely to be in Southern Africa, apparently. Possibly Botswana, the location of the longest trip for a third date in history, or Namibia, where the sun is claimed they will be staying at an exclusive lodge, surrounded by mountains, desert, and very little else. Perhaps they are looking to recreate those special moments they had shared in Africa before. In the words of Prince Harry, quote, We camped out with each other under the stars. It was absolutely fantastic. And with that wonderfully romantic sentiment, we have reached the end of this royal wedding special. I hope that you all enjoyed it. I certainly had a blast making it. And I hope you all enjoy Harry and Meghan's big day 
in two weeks' time.